0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and chief evangelist for Postman, Ken Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore the world of APIs through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have Peter Shafton, CTO at NGROC. Peter has just joined NGROC, but he shared with me his view of the API economy from his experience leading architecture for Twilio over the last decade. Well, let's... uh. Let's start with the basics. Who are you? What do you do?
1: Yeah. So uh, my name is Peter Shafton. I am currently the CTO of NGROC, but in a previous life, the last 10 and a half years, I was uh, VP of architecture and technology research at Twilio, uh, which was an API first company as well.
0: What brought you to APIs? What brought you to Twilio? Did you, you go there thinking you were going to do APIs or...?
1: I I knew it in a sense. Like I think I've always been a big fan of developer tools, things that enable developers to get their jobs done. From the early days at SGI, where I was basically working on OpenGL, which was the graphics APIs to enable you to do and build interesting things with, with graphics. And then later digital media, the video libraries and things like that. I always loved enabling developers, right? And so one of the things I thought was really slick about Twilio was how easily and quickly you could take that tool set and solve a problem that otherwise would be very challenging for you to solve, right like some of that seems trivial, like sending a text message turns out is not that trivial to do reliably, and the same is true for phone calls, right like I could probably initiate an outbound phone call that sent you an audio file, but it would be much harder for me to wire that up inbound to something like my web page or some logic, and so I think it's very empowering like I like. I like building tools. I like doing things that enable me as a developer to do things more easily. So effectively, really I'm building tools for myself. I am the audience, but it turns out other developers find that useful.
0: Yeah. Twilio really, I mean, it's the, it's kind of the, the pinnacle of, of what we showcase when it comes to making developers' lives easier from what the resource is, SMS, voice, to, the onboarding experience to the overall developer experience, it working it working well, reliably, all those things. So what's the biggest challenge doing APIs for you when during your time at Twilio? What did you see as the, the hardest problems?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a few problems. One is, is the APIs are sort of forever, right? Like once you put them out there, you don't really know who's built against you more or less, and you can't easily get them to move. So if you made a bad decision, you sort of have to live with it for a long period of time. It's sort of the equivalent of like where you decide to put electrical outlets or or network wiring in your house. You you can do it after the fact, but it's pretty painful to go back to change that. And so APIs are the same way. I think that's the hardest part. Like, have I thought of something, you know, did I overpromise? Did I give out something that was too complicated to support a lot of good examples? Like as an example, we allowed you to do something called deep paging at Twilio early on, which basically meant like, hey, here's your result set, and I know you've like a list of all the text messages you've sent in all your time of using Twilio. I'd like to jump into the 10,000th page, right? Sorted by time. That was an API that was really useful to developers, but almost impossible for us to implement internally. And so I think those are the challenges, like where you thoughtful about which things are gonna bite me. Did I give myself an ability to upgrade versions? How do I split traffic or split customers? And I think in most of us build in a multi-tenant world now, which meant that if this is wildly successful, customer A can can effectively stomp the capacity or infrastructure support for customer B. And in a perfect world, you wouldn't want to. Those are the biggest challenges for sure,
0: scale and permanence. In the space, we use the phrase API first a lot. What does that mean to you?
1: Capability or a feature or something you want to do. There's got to be a way to do it through an API. Like, that is how you're thinking about it. If there's a user interface or, or another way to achieve the same outcome, you have to make sure that it also can be driven by an API. If you kind of don't think of it that way, then it, you've effectively limited who and what can use your, your service and how, right? And so if you can't script it, if you can't control it programmatically, then you very much limited, certainly the developer customer base. And I've seen customers, you know, developers do crazy things for products or or capabilities that didn't have an API, right? You see them scrape web pages, you see them programmatically do HTTP posts because somebody didn't create an API for it. And I had a fun story when I was at a startup, this company called uh, Virage. We did video image recognition. So we extracted metadata for video. And I had an engineer there who had built a piece of software that did speech to text. And it had this crazy interface. I couldn't understand why he had created the crazy API. And I realized he'd ended up wrapping the sample app that had shipped with this company's product. And he didn't realize that he could have just written to their SDK directly. And so effectively, the interface that he was writing to was a CLI. was a command line program. And so it gets you to think, like, people do crazy stuff, like, to make it work, to make it work together. But if you don't create an API, if that isn't your first thought, then you're just making it really difficult to use what you've got in creative ways.
0: When I first woke up to Twilio, I remember when Jeff first came on the scene and and was pushing it to developers. I was one of those developers and I was like, all right, this is really speaks to me because it's API first. It's it's really speaks to my needs. SMS is a large scope thing that I have trouble doing on my own. Like, I don't know the telco network. I don't know all of this realm. And Jeff's and and y'all are going to figure this out for me. Over the years, though, I've really seen Twilio as more of an enabler of much, much more like all the API economy level stuff, like delivery apps, like it enabled, you know, SMS at that level, that ease enabled so many more other ecosystems. Did you see that early on or was it just pretty hyper focused on, hey, the direct consumers of of SMS and, and the resources we're making available?
1: No, I mean, I think we saw, we very much saw the the niche we were providing. And, and this was Jeff's vision early on, you know, long before I got there. If you look at his trajectory, he always worked for companies that had a pretty important service component, right? Like when I say worked for, Jeff really started little startups, right? His first one was a university lecture note company, right? So at school, they would take lecture notes, right? But the the trick of all these things is how do you communicate with your customer? Right. How did you notify them that the notes are ready? How did you communicate? Uh, he did the same thing when he did StubHub, right? It's like how do you how do you tell somebody that somebody wants to buy your ticket, right, because finding that out a week later when they check their email or whatever is not useful, like, you got to know right now. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to sell the ticket right now. And so he very much saw the need for communication to be part of it. And that being a very challenging thing for him and, and why he created Twilio. And I think we early on knew that making that easy enabled a bunch of things now what we didn't have the visibility is to see all of the places where that would happen right like the existence the creation of uber which eventually led into and a bunch of other things which obviously for the last two years has been serious for us and that that shift the customer experience that it created would just raise the bar for everybody right like we effectively decimated the taxi industry right indirectly because in the old days, and I don't know if you're in the Bay Area, when you order a taxi, you call and you say, I want a taxi. And they go, great, we'll send you a taxi. And an hour later, maybe the taxi shows up, maybe it doesn't. You don't know. Uh, you call again. You have no visibility into that. And to change that into a model where it's like, no, 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 like, we're going to tell you in the taxi. We're going to tell you who the driver is. We'll let you know. Right? That communication part of the business is as important as the actual delivery of the service. And so the same thing is true. Like You're tracking your food now. Right. When you order, it, you know, it's coming, you know, when they picked it up from the restaurant, you know, when the driver's headed to the restaurant, like now that is the bar for all these other companies, right? For banks and for, for every service industry. And so the trick is, well, okay, now that you've raised the bar, what does everybody have to do to get there? Right. And the answer is, well, they all got to go write messaging and voice code. Nobody's going to do that. Right. And I think you probably went through the whole same phase. Like there was a point in time where web pages were all static, right? And then they started to become dynamic, You're like, ah, like, I'll just stay on the page and the data will update dynamically as things are changing. And when we first did that, it was all Ajax code, right? Somebody would figure out how to write Ajax code that worked in every version of every browser. And it was crazy, right? And it was a nightmare for a developer, and eventually you started to get jQuery and other libraries that, that made it a lot easier for everybody to kind of have dynamic web pages. But I think for Twilio, it's exactly that. It just raised the bar and enabled this set sort of capability that everybody expected to have ubiquitously. So I think we saw the possibility. I don't think we we understood how far it went (laughs) and how many industries would be affected. And I think the funny thing about Twilio is there's still a fraction of the world that's even adopted that, right? You look at how many have not and how many industries have not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to watch telco industry wake up to it. It took a while for them to even see Twilio from the the old the old guard telco folks. I know at least they were like, "What is this thing?" You know, and then they start, "Well, this thing is interesting." And then it became a little bit more threat level, but it's still compared to the overall global telco market, like it's. You know, I think there's a lot of interesting things there for them, but they're big dinosaurs. So I think it's the same for a lot of the other industries, you know, taxi. I think it took them a while to wake up to Uber a little bit, a little bit faster, I think. But I think that communication piece is is interesting. So do you think the average enterprise? I mean, everyone's an API company nowadays. It's it's really gone mainstream. And do you think that that communication factor is really where people should be focusing on? Is that that making it real time and making it really uh, personal that, on that level?
1: Well, it, I think it's an important part of the business, right? Like it's important. It, it is, you know, it's not the only thing, right? Like as a company, you have to figure out how do I bill efficiently, right? How do I accept a bunch of different payment forms? How do I you know, have a channel for the customer to communicate with me? But I think our expectations of what a company will do and how it will interact with its customers has changed. And, and so if you don't have that, it almost feels antiquated, right? Like you see people communicating with companies via Twitter, right? Uh, you used to call and sit on the 1-800 helpline for hours and, and just deal with that is the only way to communicate with a company. And I think your expectation has changed significantly. I think the tricky part is, you know, how does a company do that at scale? Like we saw the Twitter built a, a call center product called Flex, right? And, and so we see this shift and saw this shift from voice based support to text-based support, right? Either text messages or email where a a support person can handle thousands of them or dozens of them, you know, at the same time, as opposed to I can only be on one phone call at a time, right? And so my ability to service customers in the synchronous fashion is much, much harder, you know? And so that is an important shift, but I think you you would hit on something that was interesting too, like for the telcos, introducing APIs after the fact is very challenging, right? Like if your infrastructure was not stood up to support those use cases. It looked a lot like that guy who worked for me, right? Wrapping an, you know, a, a sample, app. Um, mm-hmm. like there was no hook, right? To basically go in and get the result back. like, all I could do is whatever came out on standard out and try to parse it in some crazy way. It was us parsing the web page. And so for these guys, like, okay, I'm AT&T and I want to create an API that allows somebody to make a phone call. Like, like that is not at all how my infrastructure works, right? My mm-hmm. infrastructure makes phone calls. They, they initiate by somebody in like, where would I have that hook? And and how do I deal with back pressure and scale and things like it just wasn't a thought. And that's why it was so hard for them to make that shift. And I've talked to a bunch of other companies that are doing the same thing. Like we built this thing, and like, you know, the way you configure it is through the web page, right? You come in and and we generate this enormous JSON blob that is all the parameters we need to pass. We pass it all back in one call because we we have an HTTP post, and then we stand up all the structures we need on the server side. And now you're like, okay, like how do I make an API? I don't know. I didn't deconstruct it into its residual parts. And, you know, what can you do and not do? I and mean, it turns out that's a really hard thing to do well.
0: I think you really touched on the heart of, for me, like why APIs matter, why being API first and seeing the world in APIs, because it's going to allow you to evolve quicker, respond to things. So can you speak to how API first allowed? Because Twilio's responded to quite a few things. I mean, it's quite been quite a few acquisitions you guys got into building some apps, so I'm guessing this was in response to changes or opportunities you saw and how did being API first allow you guys to respond to those?
1: No, I mean, I think that's a good way to think about it, right? Like there was, you know, if you think back different companies tackle APIs in different ways, right? I think Twilio's approach was very Unix like when you think about uh, in the early days of Unix, you had tools and, and they had they did a simple action and they usually had a simple output, but you could pipe them together, right? You They had simple things like t and and pipe uh, and sort and grep and unique that each, each of these tools that kind of did a thing, but you could wire them together and have different outputs, right? Different outcomes. So like using these simple tools. And so Twilly was very much the same thing. Like here is a thing that you can tell it what message to send. You can tell it the body, you can tell it who to talk to. But that's all it does right and the same thing is i can initiate a phone call but each flow in that in that process i can tell it a simple thing to do and with those simple capabilities it meant that you could build more complex use cases on top of it and again this was a thing that was difficult for incumbents to do and as we saw people building call centers or marketing products on top of it it was pretty easy for us to build a solution that allowed all the flexibility of what was under the covers as a, as a, a product on top, that would have been very hard for somebody else to do. Cause we already had all the building blocks. Like you want to add people to a conference, you want to move them for the conference. You want some participants to be on video and some participants to be on a telephone call. Like we have all that, like we have all those pieces. And as we looked for acquisitions, we looked for companies that were API first, right? There was no surprise that we acquired SendGrid because they were an API first email company, right? Like it was, it was, very easy to see how naturally these two would fit together, right? You want to you want to call into your call center, but also send emails as a as a mechanism of getting support. Guess what? SendGrid already does all that. Like the, those wires to connect them to our infrastructure was fairly easy and segment the same way, right? A company that is programmatically driven. And so there are a lot of companies that wouldn't have fit well in that culture and wouldn't have fit well in that in that
0: environment. But and, you know, for Twilio, those and, building blocks made it easy to move. And those acquisitions I'm assuming were a lot, the friction was reduced because they were API first and because Twilio is API first. So there are things that are gonna have to be smoothed out, but I'm guessing it it made those a lot lot easier and quicker.
1: I I think that it was less friction for our customers, hopefully, although it's not entirely true because of a lot of the internal things, but most of the friction came from us internally, right? Like, okay, we're API first, but like, how did we stand up our APIs inside, right? What did we enable? It's funny, you know, Jeff talks about, you know, being interface driven as a company, right? Like we have APIs for for our customers and we have APIs between teams, right? If you read his book, um, he, he sort of talks about this. And the reality was Twilio actually was not built that way internally at first. It was a database-centric architecture where all the communication happened in the database. One service would write something, another service would pull the database and see the change and act on it. As opposed to, as you would think, the two services would, would hit each other through REST APIs. And initiate the changes. We eventually got there, but that was not where we started. And so it, APIs over time has changed, right? And the API, if you think of the early days, we ran into this a lot. You do a rest operation, right? You, you break your logic or your infrastructure up into these models and these models, would each have an interface, right? So you'd say conceptually, there is an element that is a message, right? And if I want to get all the messages, I just hit the list resource and get all of the messages, right? But it means some things you want to do, like show me the messages as they're coming in. You're a company like Uber, and it turns out you're sending 50,000 messages a second, not 1,000 messages a second, right? And I can only page through 1,000 records at a time. Like, I cannot get my messages this way, right? It was a simple REST API. It made a lot of sense as an interface, but it did not work into the modern world where Segment and others live where you actually wanted a streaming interface, right? Like how do the records stream across an interface? And so APIs have to evolve. And we've seen this with GraphQL, we've seen this with Kafka as an interface and other things. And I think that is one of the challenges for data scale that people learn, right? You usually do, you start with rest, because it's simple, you know, you have a JSON payload, it makes a lot of sense. And then you try to build an interface or a product on top of it, you realize at scale round tripping a thousand rest requests to build up a page doesn't work. Right. And so the question is, you know, it was great for sending a message. It was great for initiating a phone call. It wasn't great for, like, show me the messages from last month.
0: What's the decision making process and how you, you chose Kafka went with different technologies? Was it was it purely technical? Was it about how it handled data? What was some of the thinking that went into those those evolutions? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were forced to deal with it, but because of scale. And and there's a things are changing now. You know, you, know, you have ELT and and other mechanisms of accessing data, and the, and the ecosystem has changed, right? In the early world, you collected data and it only went to you. You know, you build a BI system, it would sit in S3, and you'd have Redshift, and you would query your data, and that's where it went. And and then the customers started to want their own data back, like it was theirs conceptually, and so. How do you give it to them in a way that is, that is convenient and makes sense? And this is where Segment and all these other companies starting to live now right? in this world where what is the data interface? And I think we had to evolve with that time. You'll see it, there's an event stream product that's part of Twilio now that allows you to effectively subscribe to a product to send me all of the messages when they happen, right? as they change, all the phone calls as they happen. Send them over this interface they will stream into my infrastructure kafka is one of those ways although kafka is is much more common for an internal interface right that decide how you send data over the wire right are using json scheme are using avro Uh, what do those interfaces look like what infrastructures do you connect into in gcp or azure or aws those become the data interfaces and they're as important you know uh, for setting up these almost streaming pipelines more than like I'm hitting an API and I'm getting a result.
0: Right. Yeah. Those those partner influences and external influences definitely shaping technical decisions more and more. Did was there a lot of regulatory that influenced your decision making along these lines as well? It's an
1: interesting battle. Like there was a so Twilio, I, I drove something called GDPR at Twilio. That was my responsibility, among other things. And It was, there were two vectors inside, right? One was this world where you say, listen, and Twilio was unique in some respects, maybe not unique compared to others, but we had a lot of sensitive data, right? We have the the body of the text message you just sent and watching what's happened with the January 6th investigation and other things, you know, having the bodies of text messages is pretty important and very dangerous in a lot of cases, right? You can imagine we also have the recordings of audio calls um, and potentially a packet capture of audios, uh, of phone calls in times. And so one vector is, listen, we're going to go towards zero. Right, our, our goal is to retain nothing. As a customer will give you a flag that says, listen, as soon as we have sent that text message, we will purge any record of it from all of our systems. Right, We won't even keep a record of the fact that you sent it because that's what you'll want. Right? It's a good way to achieve GDPR. And guess what? We don't have to retain data. Uh, our storage systems get smaller. This is a great story. Right, And then you think about, well, what is the value of a company? Like, Is it more valuable that I throw away all your data because that way you don't have to worry about using me think about google not retaining any of your web searches or is it more important that i have it but give it back to you in some valuable way right like you, you trust me i'm going to encrypt it when i have it nobody can steal it from me and when you want it back i'll give it to you in any way you want it right you can filter it you can order it you can sort it but you can also tell me to delete swaths of it. we felt like that was a much better story right as a company I would rather be the company that owned all your data and just was great arbiters of it than the company that just purged all your data. And it actually, you know, if you think about the the corollary is a company like PayPal, right? Or Stripe or somebody where as a company we don't keep credit cards, right? Like none of us would stand up a business right now where we say, yeah, like, you know, go ahead and put your credit card into my web form and we'll store it in a database for you, right? Your credit card number and your C, you know, your CVS number and all those things and we'll just use it when you want to make a payment. Like You'd think we were crazy, right? What we do is we hand it all to Stripe or PayPal. You actually interact with them directly. We get this opaque token. We don't even know what the heck it is, but we want to charge. We ask them to charge it on your behalf and they manage it, right? Their problem. Their systems don't get breached. Conceptually, we want Twilio to be the same thing. Like, would you want to be the company that is retaining all of the text messages that were your interactions with your customers? Or would you much rather have Twilio hold all that data, knowing that if you needed it, you could go ask, like, hey, Peter had some interaction with my support team last month. What did he send? And what did they respond to him with? But I don't want to keep that in all my systems because God forbid somebody breaches my system and my database. Now I'm responsible for all this proprietary, this PII data. That was a big path for us and a shift internally to say, no, no, no. Like we want to be the company that retains data, but we want to do it right. And that was a lot with the thinking around segment, right? Do we want to acquire segment? What do they do? How do we retain and store data?
0: Yeah, that's because uh, we need a whole stack of those types of companies to kind of the, I don't know, the back end as a service. You know, I need I need my payments. I need my storage. I need my messaging. I need my my core stack. And they've got to be people I trust and, and right. that aren't going to screw it up.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's tricky. Like, I think, you know, it was funny. We were going, we went down the GDPR path. I went had meetings with a bunch of companies. And one of the companies I talked to was Autodesk. Right. And so it's funny. We get paired together and we have these long conversations. Autodesk has been around for 40 some odd years. Yeah. Uh, and they said, well, yeah, we're doing GDPR. You know, what do you guys do? I said, I was, you know, we have this event that comes through. Somebody says, hey, this is my account. I want you to delete it. And so we just walk the database like we put an event on Kafka, all the systems listen to the Kafka bus and then we just purge the data from the database. Right. And then in the backups will age out after 30 days and your data is gone. Like, I said, well, how are you guys tackling it? And they said, well, huh. they're like, so it turns <laughs> out like we have about 50 databases. Some of them are fronted by COBOL code. Nobody can read or write anymore. Your email address might be in some of them. We're not sure. You know, if you if you gave it at a conference, you know, one of our marketing guys might have sent it. We may be sending you emails out of one system, you know, or text messages out of another system, or we're not sure. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna open a a, a Zendesk ticket, and we'll CC a bunch of engineers and people on it. And everybody's job is to look at those tickets every month and go log on to those databases and purge the records you're supposed to purge. So effectively, Mechanical Turk. And I said, oh, shit, really? (laughs) They said, we have another choice. Like, there's no there's no APIs between these. These systems are totally disconnected. We Can't do anything else. When it gives you that shift of like, oh, God, right? Data has become very important in APIs and, and how you handle it, how you control it, how quickly you can ask to delete it. You know what happens?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, w- I worked for the Obama administration doing the, he did the open data mandate that all top level cabinet agencies needed to go machine readable by default for any public data. So it's got to be publicly available as JSON and XML. And I'm the guy who went around to different agencies telling them they needed to do this and get ready for the deadline. And people were like, What's JSON? What what's XML? What do you mean? Like, I manage this spreadsheet and it sits on my desktop computer and I email out reports to people and like, how am I supposed to? You know, it's like so trying to to migrate these legacy processes and people. And I mean, it just really speaks to the importance of APIs and getting getting that foundation laid because it's it's so key to the future and everything now, whether it's business regulation or anything. So can't agree more. What's the favorite thing you, you did over the last decade at Twilio?
1: I, I have a, a piece that I really enjoyed working on. Sort of, it became and derived into two different things. At, at first, so we used to, obviously you can imagine all the, the phone calls that go across Twilio system, and that all used SIP as the protocol. In the early days, we had basically two servers that sat on the edge that communicated with the carrier infrastructure, right? If you needed to debug a phone call, like, hey, what happened? Why did that call not complete? Why did it take so long? You know, why did the carrier hang up on us? Did they hang up on us or was it, you know, the user? We would literally log on to one of those two servers, actually log on to both because you don't know which one it hit, uh, and go find that call, right? So you can imagine that was going to be hard to scale over time. And, and eventually, Twilio's infrastructure became global, and and a phone call would actually take sometimes up to 11 hops, for the SIP stack, right? It would go through a bunch of internal servers. It might go through an edge gateway. It would get rerouted to another region because it turned out the guy in the other with the call was in Paris. And so I built a system we called CallMeta that basically did a packet capture at the network layer, decoded the SIP protocol, and stored and extracted metadata in in a, in a distributed database system. And so the idea was you could effectively ask it about a phone call and say, Go find me all the packet captures related to this phone call, cobble them to back together and draw me a ladder graph, right? So I can see mm-hmm. which servers did this go through? What happened? Who, who did what? Where was latency introduced or not? It turned out you could repurpose that to start to see patterns of like, listen, are we seeing increased latency through a single availability zone, through a single uh, region, one single egress point? Like, is it one of our servers, one of the media servers in a, in a, in a carrier side that's gone bad? Or everything related to a, a region of the country, right? Like, did, did somebody sever a, a transatlantic cable? And therefore, all the calls related to, you know, destination Belgium from, from New York are kaput, right? And so that was a lot of fun. Like, it was a lot of fun to build a system that, that dealt with the protocol, that thought about how am I going to store the data? How am I going to scale it? I can't retain this forever. And, and what interface would a support person want or need um such that they could go reach out to the carrier and go hey listen we need to escalate this is the issue so that was fun it was a fun system to build and work on uh over time yeah
0: those are those are those scope of problems the data this is what i love i'm i'm an old database guy since the the 80s been doing databases so i really love the explosion of metadata but then you touch you touch you kept saying it C. I want to be able to see and I really feel like that's the key part of our worlds right now is helping people see this virtual realm. And that's kind of the segment acquisition, I would say to a certain degree, is it is it makes it makes it viewable, makes it manageable like it's so it's these things are such large problems. Any way we can get help to see things and manage them is is valuable.
1: Yeah. And segment was interesting. And it brought in if you think about Twilio, it has the communication protocol like we know when you make the phone call, we know when you send the text messages but aside from your phone number, we don't know who you are, right? We know nothing about you. You may have spent an hour on the Nike website looking at shoes and then decided you were gonna call support, right? Or we may have initiated a text message out to you to say, listen, here's 20% off this cool new Petter sneakers, right? But for Twilio, I don't know you're you. The only thing I know is that here's a, a string of text I sent to your, to a phone number, whether it's yours or not, I don't know either. Segment brought in the marriage of that other set of data that came from your website and from your CRM system and all those other pieces. And so being able to combine those two is really the value prop in many ways. Right. If you think about it as a support person, if when you called in, it pulled up the rest of your record, right? Showed you your purchase history, showed me your interactions and, and your name and email address right? that. That is where the Nirvana is, right? And the marketing system conceptually the same thing.
0: Yeah, but we always lacked that data
1: and that visibility. Yeah, we had no context.
0: Yeah, it's the it's the context you need to understand what what, what's this log file I'm looking at or whatever I'm looking at. It it gives it meaning for sure. That's right. So your transactional company. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that context, that meaning to the humans, I think, is is where the real value is, because then not just the end users, but us as the startups and business people, we can connect the dots in more meaningful, purposeful ways that make our lives better rather than just tech for the sake of tech. No, absolutely. Um, you've moved on. You're at Ngrok now. What are you going to be doing there?
1: Uh, So my my role there is CTO. Again, this is a, you know, a technology story. It's a a similar to Twilio in many ways. It is a tool that enables people to bring their, their logic and their code and their servers to, to the rest of the world. Right. Like if you think about, you know, there's two challenges. One is, did I make an API? Right. Like, We've, we've talked about that for the last half hour or more, right? How easy is it to use? What does it look like? The second thing is like, well, how do I get that out to the rest of the world? You know, I think Postman deals with like, how do I find it? <laughs> how did I know it was there? What does it look like? How do I use it? But I tactically, as an engineer within a software company, have to figure out how do I expose it and how do I do it safely? And how do I do it at scale? And so for for a lot of folks, that turns out that's really hard to do. And NGROC really fulfills that niche that makes it really easy either as a developer during the developer flow of exposing something I'm playing with before I'm ready for the rest of the world to see it yet, or exposing something when I'm not knowledgeable about how to scale it and make it available, or for controlling access to something. Like, listen, I want to put it out there, but I only want you know, people that authenticate through Google. Uh, I want to know who they are. I want to make sure the sessions are protected. Uh, I don't want to have visibility and, and those things. And so in Grock, really represents that tool chain. And that part of the developer ecosystem, like it fulfills a part of the problem that that I hadn't seen a lot of companies do well, right. And so I'll be hoping, you know, form both the, the product direction and, and the technical direction, like, how do they build that at scale? How do you get observability at scale? And it's a thing that just really has to work, which is, which is hard, like, you know, I think you guys, have, you know, postman's in a very similar path where it's like, Listen, while I was in the developer flow. It was fine, like using, you know, you've written your Postman scripts you're using ngrok, I'm developing my website, ngrok's down, Postman's down. It's like, eh, if it sucks, so go grab coffee, I'll come back. They'll probably be back online, I'll go continue what I was doing, right? And then there's the shift, right? Where it's like, well, no, no, like my app is built on Postman. Like every web request that comes through goes through Postman, right? Or my app is standing on top of ngrok. And now, like the latency matters, the uptime matters. Uh, I can't just do deploys where I take down the database and bring it back up an hour later, Like, it just all has to be up all the time. And so for me, that's sort of the fun. Like, how do you operate this stuff at scale? How do you build it so that that a few engineers can can basically manage infrastructure for thousands? Otherwise, you know, I'm hiring thousands of engineers.
0: Yeah, and do it at scale, but do it with the, the reliability, the quality and, and do more with less. Cause you said small teams, we've got to, we've got to really be as efficient as we can and handle these loads. So, yeah. well, I think I'll, I'll hit you up in maybe a year. Come back and talk to me about what it looks like and see, uh, see what the landscape. Cause I think that's especially with devices and things being connected to the internet. I mean, web and mobile. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited about, but I think the connecting everyday objects to the Internet and doing that in a reliably e- efficient, logical way, safe, secure, regulatory, compliant, all of that, I think, is going to be super interesting. And that's what I see in at the center of. So,
1: yeah, no, I mean, I think we're, we're in very similar journeys. Right. I think we, we tackle different parts of the problem, but but for what effectively is like, hey, I've got a thing I want the world to see or use. Mm-hmm. And, um, or even a seg- segment of the world, help me do that. Right. Like, I think we have learned over time what is hard about that. Like, what's hard about defining an API that's, that lives on? What is hard about scaling infrastructure that makes it easy? But not everybody has the luxury and they're going to want to stand up on stuff. And, and we've learned the same thing with AWS, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you, you've been around long enough. We used to rack servers, right? We used to drag network cables and power and things. Why would I do that again? Like, the guys that were great at that were great at that, right? Um, but no startup company could afford those guys, and even if they could, they wouldn't want to hire them. So you pay AWS to do it. You pay them a premium, right? Like I'm renting, you know, a, a five thousand dollar box for a thousand dollars a month, I paid for the darn thing in half the month, but I pay for it again and again and again over the year. Why would I do that? And the answer is like I don't have to deal with it, and they know what they're doing.
0: Well, and it's this evolution for me. The the enterprise, I mean and APIs represent this is SOA within the enterprise, very behind the firewall. And then APIs kind of jumped out of the SOA toolbox. Web APIs kind of fueled mobile. We had this public explosion that gave us Twilio and Stripe and others. But then we have this microservices evolution, which is, again, turning internally, I think, and, and using services. But now I think it's just the world, like you, we're just all operating on the on the Internet. Like there's, there's no behind the firewall. There's just... I've got this thing I want to show here, put it up there. Help yeah. me do it safely, securely. Yeah. It's the safely and
1: securely part that I think it scares the Jesus out of most of us, right? We don't realize, you know, as we all start living on the same infrastructure and the same things, if somebody messes something up, we all kind of go down for the, the run. Like we learned it with log4j and, and other pieces, right? Where it's like, ah, somebody messed something up and we're all using it. Now what? Yeah. You know, and so that's scary.
0: Thanks for coming by and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate your insight and and look forward to maybe having this conversation again down the road.
1: No, that'd be great, Ken. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Peter for stopping by. For more on Peter, you can find him on LinkedIn, or you can see what he's building at ngrok.com. You can also subscribe to the Breaking Changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes. I'm your host, Ken Lane. And until next time. Cheers.